This is Robert Roy McGregor. Come to reclaim the 32 beasts stolen from his lordship, James Graham Marquis of Montrose. Damn Sybald. Still at your thieving. Throw down now and I'll spare you. All but one. There's a price to being a leader of man, Tom. Alright folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 48, and today we're talking about Rob Roy. This great and fantastic film stars Liam Neeson, Jessica Lange, John Hurt, and Tim Roth. I'm your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark, broken but not dead Slover. Steve, Ken, you know the difficulty of dueling an enemy with a Claymore mine is they never will stay front toward enemy. <laughs> It wasn't a mine. It was just a claymore. Oh, thanks. Helpful safety tip. Appreciate it, Ken. Oh, that was good. Brilliant. Golf clap. Like it. All right. And uh, also rounding us out is our other good and dear friend, Ken. I like a man who knows his place. Rony. I'll wager you 20 guineas that some of our listeners may be entertained by this podcast. <laughs> You know what, Ken? The reason I did that, I like a man who knows his place for you, because you do have that aristocratic look about yourself. I just need some frilly, silky leather, you know, stockings and such, and a little powdered wig, and I'd pull it right off. This was the age of lace, was it not? Yes, yes. it was. It the was. manliest men could wear pink lace and still high be a badass. Yeah, and high heels. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Uh, our other good and dear friend, Jeff Archibald Muncy, uh, is unfortunately unable to be with us tonight, but he sends his regards and looks forward to our review next week, in which he said he will be attending. But whether or not the president lets him out of the uh, cabinet meeting, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Folks, this movie review is another in our rotation of our great personal favorites or uh, special gems that uh, I like to say have a place in our hearts. Not necessarily one of our all-time favorites, but uh, maybe a little bit, well, unknown movies that people haven't seen before, haven't heard about. Uh, this particular one is personal favorite of mine. It is a uh, definite period piece uh, that, for whatever reason, it kind of hit home with me. I think a lot of it is because I do have an affinity for anything Scottish, even though I don't have an ounce of Scottish blood in me. I like the culture. I like the music. I just like, I like everything about it. And you've, got, you've got gallons of scotch in you, don't you? <laughs> I got about a fifth in it last week. <laughs> wow, Ken. Thanks. Going to be one of those nights. Ken's going to be posting you up all night long. I know. I've got, I've got to come. Wait. You know, I'm sure there's going to be a kilt joke coming in here somewhere. You and sheep. That's all I'll say. Nothing but wool, baby. Nothing but wool. All right. This, uh, Like I said, this movie was made in 1995. And as I mentioned earlier, it stars Liam Neeson, Jessica Lange, John Hurt, Tim Roth, a couple other actors in here that uh, we are aware of. One of them is Eric Stoltz, pretty big back in the 80s. He plays, I think he, him and Jessica Lange, I think are the only two Americans in this movie. And the other actor in there, a character actor, and we've all seen him, uh, he is one of our personal favorite character actors, is Brian Cox. And he plays uh, Killern. And he plays his standard horribly unlikable, bad person type character that he always plays. He's just he's just enjoyable to watch in this. And uh, and he is Scottish. Yeah, in fact, I think he's probably, he may be the only Scot that was in this movie. And he was born in uh, uh, Dundee, Scotland. So 
I think there's a few. There might be a couple others, but I think he's the he's the the, the main one that you'll see who is actually Scottish. Liam Neeson is actually uh, English. Hurt, or I'm sorry, he's Irish. Irish. <laughs> sorry. Easy, sorry. Easy, easy. Step slowly away from the mic. Okay. John Hurt, Tim Roth, both uh, uh, both proud Englishmen. Like I said, this this is just one of those old personal favorites of mine. It was set back in the early 1700s in Scotland, and the background of this movie is uh, it's about Rob Roy, the story of Rob Roy, and in the Highlands in the Highlands of Scotland in the 1700s, Rob Roy tries to lead his small town to a better future. He does so by borrowing money from the local nobility. That would be John Hurt. He plays Montrose and borrows money from him to buy cattle to herd to market. When the money is stolen, Rob Roy is forced into a Robin Hood lifestyle to defend his family and honor. That's the movie background. I will I will confess, I don't know a whole lot of the, the, the true story behind Rob Roy. I heard he was kind of a little bit of a Scottish cattle rustler back then, kind of a folk hero of Scotland. Probably more out there about him than, than obviously William Wallace, but uh, essentially the way the movie starts off is he... Uh, he wants to borrow money from John Hurt, who plays the Marquis of Montrose. Uh, and do we do we understand is is, Mar- is, uh, is Montrose is he actually an Englishman who is a English lord in Scotland, or is he actually a Scottish lord? He and Argyle, the other nobleman in the movie, were Scottish. But this was a time when you know about what a generation before Scotland. Basically, England and annex Scotland. There's a long dynastic thing going on where the Stuart kings of, of Scotland were the rulers of England, then they were chased out. But the bottom line is there's an English king. English king is calling the shots in Scotland as well as England. And the nobles, knowing where their bread is buttered, were adopting English customs, you know, conforming to English law and you know, the thing about this movie I, I wanted to note was it's a clash of cultures movie mm-hmm. because it is you've got the upper classes that are basically adopting English ways, but then you've got the the lower classes, the people in the back hills who are still doing it the old fashioned way, right. and that's there's a clash, and you see that in the movie. Yeah, see, because that was one thing that was never really clear to me is whether or not Montrose was an English lord that had lands in Scotland and was living there, or if he was actually Scottish. Because Argyle, I mean, he had the whole, I mean, he had the kilt, the the, the, the plaid beret and everything. I mean, he, I mean, he just looked the part. Whereas, and, and looked the part in terms of, I mean, he looked like a Scottish lord because of just the, the get-up and everything like that. So I, I just was under the impression that, that John Hurt was just not Scottish, particularly because he also had uh, Tim Roth with him, and Tim Roth played Cunningham, Archibald Cunningham, who was... J- Say it, he's a fop. He's a fop, yeah. He he's was an evil fop. Yeah, he was an evil fop. So I just, that was where I got that impression from. And we'll talk about Tim Roth in a little bit. He played, I think, probably of in, in most of the movies I've ever seen, probably one of the most convincingly evil characters that I've ever seen in a movie to the point of, and it's a credit to Tim Roth because he was able to really inhabit that character in such a way that you almost got, about halfway through the movie, you actually got a visceral uh, feeling every time you saw him because he just, he just had no morals. I mean, you kind of find out why he kind of is the way he is, 
but it's one of those where it's like, okay, yeah, so you, you had a, you had a mother that pretty much, you know, who was a court consort who lifted her skirts, you know, for anybody who came around, you don't know who your father is, but you know, that, that doesn't excuse the behavior that you engage in. And it is, it's borderline sociopath, I think, as, as we'll, as we'll talk later in the show. But Tim Roth did a fantastic job in this movie. I just, I, I think this probably had to have been the best role he ever played. And he was up for a best supporting actor for this role, but he did not get it. That's almost a travesty. Uh, I agree. He really played the part very well. And like I said, I don't think I've seen Tim Roth and other stuff, and it doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to this. It really does. Uh, there's a sort of, a little element of dark humor throughout the movie where Brian Cox's Calarin character, who is a downright no good bad guy, right. Has Cody. a series of run-ins and scenes where essentially he's you know reacting in a sort of a whoa dude I'm bad but <laughs> you take it to it a new yeah tone it down a little bit to you know to Cunningham <laughs> yeah yeah when you when you realize what a bastard uh, Kale Aaron is and that's played by Brian Cox it, it doesn't hold a candle to how Tim Roth is I mean no. Cox I just get the impression he's just you know kind of like Mark you said he's a toady he's He's out for himself. He's basically uh, John Hurt's or Montrose's, uh, you know, bag man. You know, bag, bag man. Yeah, bag man. Yeah, that, there you go. You know, he's conniving. He's, you know, a no good guy. I mean, he'll stab you in the back if it's going to profit him, but you don't get the sense that he's that evil. He doesn't know going in that Cunningham is as bad as he is. He thinks, well, he's just another guy like me. Yeah. And we can work together for our mutual profit. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, he's, Kalaren's an opportunist. Right. And I want to talk about that, just kind of bring the listeners up to speed on this, because that's where really the, the main plot comes in. Rob Roy McGregor, and he goes to Montrose to borrow 1,000 pounds so he could buy cattle and then herd them to another market and sell them for a profit. Obviously, Kalaren is aware of this because he, he draws up the loan papers and everything, and, and instead of giving Rob Roy McGregor a note... He gives he gives him a bag of coin. In fact, he doesn't even get to Rob Roy. He gives it to one of Rob Roy's um, trusted lieutenants or best friends. But when he does that, he you know, and it was supposed to be a note, note of credit. But like I said, he gives this guy a bag a thousand you know thousand pounds in, in coins, and then he goes and tells Archie Archie Cunningham, hey, if you want to make a thousand pounds and we could split some of it, I can tell you where to pick it up. So basically, Archie ambushes, um, and it's it's Eric Stoltz who plays a part. Ambushes him, kills him, takes the money, and and the only thing that comes back is, well, you just got robbed. Well, he owes Montrose a thousand pounds, and Montrose says, well, you got to pay up. Your land's forfeit to me, and and until that's settled, he's gonna throw Rob Roy in the uh, in the toll booth. And uh, I had to look that up because I, I wasn't sure what a toll booth was back then. I kept thinking it was that what they got to throw a quarter to get him out or something. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I know what a toll booth is. I'm just, I'm just messing. So, well, and, and the other part of that is Montrose references throughout the movie that he knows what Archie did. He makes comments about, oh, I see you've gone to the tailor. My, you're looking well-dressed. He's pretty much figured out that Archibald has taken the money, but he can't prove it. Yeah, there's a scene when he's kind of dressing Cunningham down. And I don't know if I have a quote or not uh, to play later in the in the clip session, you know, where there's a scene where he's, you know, dressing him down, and then he just and I love the look on on John Hurt's face because he kind of stops, 
And he looks right back at Archie and he goes, something here is not what it seems. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've got new clothes, but I know you don't have any means to pay for them. And it's just like there's something going on, and you you honestly don't know what it is. But I think I think you're right, Mark. I think towards the end you do suspect, um, or that he does suspect that there was some, um, as Rob Roy later said, skullduggery that was involved. And I just want to say right now, that's a, that's a term that really needs to come back in the fashion. <laughs> skullduggery. Skullduggery. Yes, I, I just love that. I love that term. Don't know what the hell it means. I know what it means. It just I'm trying to figure out how skullduggery got into the to the vernacular, but it's kind of neat. That needs to come it, back. It's a good word. No, I I like to mention when you for a viewer watching this, the movie is focused on Liam Neeson's Rob Roy McGregor character and his wife Jessica Lange's uh, Mary McGregor, as well as you know that's the protagonist. The antagonist is Tim Roth mainly with. Brian Cox's Calaren, sort of a secondary role. But in the background, you've got a whole lot of period politics going on, high-level stuff involving the, the two characters you see here are two noblemen that are constantly appearing in the movie is the Duke of Argyle and the you know, Marquis of Montrose. And you get the feeling, you know, these guys have been backstabbing and outmaneuvering and trying to get the goods on each other for their whole life. They've been playing a game. And the game is all revolving around dynastic succession and who's you know who's a Jacobite, who's who supports the foreign king. And, you know, if I can if I can prove the other guy is in league with the uh, the Stuart King in exile, maybe I can get a hook into some of his property as reward from the king for exposing him. So there's this whole back and forth going on, and really Rob Roy is just sort of stuck in the middle. He's he's portrayed in the movie as your typical. He runs his little clan or his little village. He's uh, trying to do the right thing for his people. They're poor, they're downtrodden, and things are just you know things are bad and just getting worse for them. But he's trying to do the best he can, and then after you know trying to do you know do right by everybody and play his proper part. Boom, he gets set up with this theft, and now he's on the hook, and he's got to protect his honor. This is a movie about honor, mm-hmm. losing your honor, restoring your honor, and it's it just goes off from there. And Ken, um, you brought up a good point about the politics of this, because that really sets up fairly early in the movie uh, when you first see Montrose and Argyle together, they're having a little bit of a discussion about the succession. And, and, and we've talked about this in the past in terms of, you know, British history, or, or I should say English history, British history. You know, how many people in America really understand it, know it, and especially the way it was being discussed in this movie? The three of us pretty much know what was being said. They know what they were talking about. But I have to wonder, in 1995, when uh, American audiences went to the theater, they're sitting there going, what the hell are they talking about? I mean, Who? <laughs> I mean, what what king and the success? What's the what succession? And then the whole when they start talking about Jacobites and the Stuart King, I, I had to think that the audience was lost on this. And like you said, Kent, it is kind of a central point in the movie because that is really what sets this whole thing up. Is when Rob Roy goes back to Montrose and says, you know, I know the money was stolen. It was stolen from you and me. What you know, there's I can do something else and loan me some more money. I can try to pay it back and Montrose says he goes I got a better idea you know I know your clan are full of Jacobites 
uh, McGregor's a clan leader. He said, give me, you know, give your word against the Duke of Argyle, accuse him of being a Jacobite, and I'll forgive your debt. Now, Rob Roy doesn't know the Duke of Argyle. He doesn't have any special affinity for him or anything like that, but he refused because to him it's like, that's, that's dishonorable. I'm not bearing false witness because that's kind of what he tells his wife later, which is a great scene between him and his wife when he's like, you know, I could I could have got us out of this if I had a bare false witness. And she's like, well, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> that's like, you know, it's like we're going to lose our home and everything. And he's like, what? And she's like, what do you owe him? And he's like, I don't owe him anything, but I'm, you know, it's my honor that I'm protecting. So this, that's what Kevin said. This movie's very big about honor. And it's very, and that's a central theme throughout the entire movie. I mean, from the opening scene. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Definitely from the opening scene. I always kind of wondered, did this, because it seemed like this movie didn't get a lot of play. I, perfectly honest with you, I don't really recall it when it came out. But then again, in 95, was it 95 or 94? I can't remember. 95. 90, 95. Mark and I saw, I'm pretty sure Mark and I saw yeah. this. And it was a limited run. It just yeah. sort of popped out. It was there for a little while, and then it sort of vanished. It came out in 95 right before, um, yeah, hello, Braveheart. So you had this whole Scottish buzz of, this type of character and i think in some ways this movie's better i like it more than braveheart they're different movies set in scotland and at different periods but braveheart i think took the thunder took the legs out from underneath whatever staying power this movie had because it came out the month after was a bigger budget was a little more epic this story takes its time it's not every half hour there's a battle scene and a rousing speech and i think that hurt this movie because out came Braveheart with decapitations and horses dying. Yeah, this and is smaller species. scale. Yeah. The action is smaller scale. It's still intense action, but it's not massive right. sweeping. I'm sorry, it's not Mel Gibson. And he was at the top of his game in 95. That's true. No, what I think, you know, I suspect what was going on here is a phenomenon that was similar to what happened with, you know, Tombstone and Wyatt Earp, where. You know, the word in Hollywood was, well, Kevin Costner's making a Wyatt Earp movie, and then it's like, well, Kurt Russell's making a Wyatt Earp movie, and they're doing it at the same time. It's sort of like, well, we heard Paramount or MGM is doing it, so we got, if they're doing a Scottish hero movie, we got to do the Scottish hero movie. And then I think that when it was United Artists that had Rob Roy, I think they just sort of went, well, you know, we could re- give this a big release and a big ad budget and all, but we're going up against Mel Gibson. So, Let's just give it a limited run, get our money back out of it, and move on. I suspect something like that happened, because it is, I think, a better movie. And I will concur with uh, both my compatriots. I think this is a better movie. I think it's a far better movie. This isn't a slam on Braveheart by any means, but it's a it's a different type of movie. Obviously, the common thing is English bad. <laughs> I mean, they obviously, because it was, it seemed like maybe for that period of time, the, I, I almost have to wonder for our uh, British cousins were like, you know, what was, what was up with Hollywood with uh, making the, making the crown look bad back then? But, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll just say this. The English weren't bad. It was the royalist, loyalist Scots were bad. <laughs> to the, they were opportunists, Ken. Yes, no, no. yes. Yeah. They were doing what they had to do. They didn't know their place, is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but it was, I, I agree. I think it was a much better movie uh, in terms of just, I think the acting was much better. The I thought the, I honestly thought the production value was much better. You really felt when you were watching the movie that you were in 
very early 18th century Scotland. Everybody was, you know, if you, you and like Ken said, you had a clash of cultures. You also had a clash of how everybody looked too. You know, when you went to uh, the royal court, or I'm sorry, when you went to like Montrose's palace or castle, whatever he had there, you know, everybody's dressed in their in their fine, you know, lace and uh, linen. And then you would look at where Rob Roy lived, and he was just basically in a log shack. And you know, and this guy, and, and, and that was a thing. You know, Rob Roy, he's the, uh, I mean, he's not like the chieftain of the clan. But he basically is, and for all intents and purposes, he never claims the title, but pretty much everybody looks looks to him as the chieftain. And when you think of, like, you look where he is, I mean, he's got some nice lakefront property where he's at, but outside of that, it's just a basically a two-room shack that, you know, with a bunch of cattle and everything hanging around it. So you saw that dichotomy there, the difference between the two. You know, they're grimy and dirty, and then you've got, you know, the fine lace and the wigs and gardens, yeah, the yeah, the the gardens and everything like that. So, I thought that's kind of neat, and it's like you said, you're you're seeing how things are becoming in Scotland, and you're seeing the old ways dying out. They, I think, they really did a very good job of portraying that, and that's what I really enjoyed about this movie. And I just thought the cinematography is much better too. It just they really captured the look and feel of that area. Now I don't know if this one, I, I honestly, I have to kick myself in the ass for not looking. I don't know if this was actually filmed in Scotland or if it was actually filmed in Ireland. Um, I know Braveheart was filmed in Ireland, but this one, honestly, not sure about. But I guess I'll I'll look that up at some other some other. It was it was filmed in Scotland. Was it filmed in Scotland? Okay, yeah, it was mo- mostly filmed mm-hmm. in the Highlands. Okay, yeah, that's good. It and and that's the thing. That's why I I think I had a better feel for it because it really looked more like Scotland, particularly when that in that very opening scene. You know, when they're chasing down the cattle rustlers and, you know, that music, that was just one of the best opening scenes of a movie. Just that whole opening part where they're, you know, you just you just see these figures running over these little. Um, yeah, they start so far away. They're just dots. Yeah. And I love the way that the director takes the time that it takes because I'm not going to give it away, I hope, but. The opening scene is, you know, you're seeing this beautiful Scottish hills, hilly, mountainous scene. And then if you're really, and, uh, nothing's happening. And then if you look way out there, there's some dots. And the dots get a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And they take, what, two or three minutes? Yeah, it takes... For the, of just watching these guys humping over the hills to get to the foreground where they can have their dialogue and their action. Right. They're trying to show. I thought that was very effective. You're like, this is Rob Roy. He's been out pounding the the bushes and hauling ass all over the place, chasing down these thieves. You know, it's a long haul. I mean, just that opening scene said a lot, and then again, it grabs you. The music kicks in, and it all gets your attention. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about that opening, the, the whole opening first ten fifteen minutes is it, it's very much a character driven opening. It's very understated. It, you understand how Rob Roy o- operates. And not to give anything away with his dealing with the tinkers. You understand that this man is very practical, very pragmatic, but he has a code. And he will give you an opportunity, and you can take it or not and suffer the consequences. And it's really done in an understated way, but it's very elegant in how it, how it opens the movie. You guys are right. It's, that's a great opening sequence. It is. It, it really is. It, it also had, the to me, the benefit that, you know, at the beginning, he's chasing, again, they're cattle thieves, they call them tinkers. Again, these are just dead-in-the-luck outcast Scotsmen, and he brings them to justice and fixes things. And, and there, you get the impression, oh, these guys are you know, 
dirty. They're living on the fringes. They've been outcast. You know, it's hell to be them. And then once you get into the movie, the action starts. All of a sudden, you realize, hey, that's where Rob Roy is going. He's going to be one of them very soon if something doesn't change. Right. Well, he kind of makes a comment about that when he, you know, after he brings the cattle back and everything, and he's telling his wife, and she says, you know, I had to kill Tom Sybil today. And that's the thing. He knew who, he knew the guy he was killing. I mean, he knew who these guys were. You know, he said, I had to kill Tom Sybil today. And she's like, well, I'm sure it was necessary. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, one or two bad winners, and that could be us. You know, out. right. And, I, and that's where you get the. They're living on the edge. Yeah, they're they're all living on the edge. It's like you know, and, and that was the thing too is when they brought when they were bringing everything back, or bringing the cattle back, you saw the village and everything that they that the the people lived in or that his clan was in, you know, and they kind of made a point of showing. I mean, it was you know, it was not anything pleasant. I mean, that was that was hard living back then. I mean, you you, you probably and I I really also like the way that they portrayed how people looked even the young women and i'm talking you know like ones maybe like in their late teens early 20s they went out of their way to make them look old way much older beyond their years you know they would they didn't like like the typical you know, what you would see today in a movie like that where they would be you know you know bright hair and heaving bosoms and that i mean they were pretty they were pretty drawn out looking well they did that all through with and i'm sure they had dental prosthetics and things like that and even Tim Roth's character, who is, he's, he's like on the fringes of nobility, and then every time he smiles, you're going, like, oh, gosh, look at his teeth. <laughs> a couple things bug me in historical pieces. And one is, when everybody's got pearly white, gleaming white teeth, and the other is when the women are all politicized, toned, yep. hair in perfect place. Fingernails I mean, I've got nothing against women being in great shape, but... They didn't look like that back then. Right. I mean, very few. Well, and that really was the part where where you saw Jessica Lange's character. I mean, she was about the only one that, you know, she looked she looked fabulous in every scene she was in. They didn't hire a 22-year-old to play her either. Though. Right. Right, they didn't, and they hired somebody who was the right age for that. And, I mean, I think she did a fine job, but it was like I said, they still went out of the way to make her look. The most attractive. I mean, you know, obviously she skin was in great shape. She was in great shape. She cranked out a couple of kids, and you know that because, like I said, I mean, living living there that was that was hard living, and that's going to wear on you, especially the kind of work that you had to do. Because I mean, you were basically farming and you know raising cattle, raising livestock, and and you were doing it at a time when you didn't have machinery to do it for you. So it was it was tough, but again, you know that's that's Hollywood. I'm not expecting them to, you know, make the lead actress, you know, look like <laughs> look like Tom Sybil's. <laughs> oh, then that opens, right. <laughs> yeah, with that crone. Oh my! God. <laughs> yeah. I was like, is that a guy or is that a guy or a girl? Oh. There was a moment there where hey. I'm like, Ooh. you take what you can. Yeah, yeah. That was somebody's true love. Don't put her down. You gotta yeah. wonder where did they where did they get that? That was <laughs> aesthetics. You gotta hope that. Yeah, you yeah. know it was good. Oh, I I bump into those folks at convenience yeah, stores all the time. <laughs> I've seen them. Real quick, if I could jump in on Jessica no, Lang, it she, you know that look about her, which I didn't have a problem with. I thought she looked fine in the sense yes. of kind of hearty, windswept. It reminded me of Annette Bening in Open Range. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. 
still had some beauty about her, but she had lived on the frontier. And I, I thought that that, that that look hung well together, that you have a natural beauty, but you know, you're, you're still living on the edge, and it shows. But you, you, make a, you make a good point. She still had that almost frontier look about her. Mm-hmm. Which which was good, and I did. I mean, I I personally thought. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the actors. I want to move on real quick and talk about some of the actors. And I, really, let's just let's just start with her. I, I I thought she did a fairly good job. Actually, I thought she did a really good job in this. Miranda Richardson was supposed to play her her role in this, and I think that well, I mean, you would have had a you know English person. I mean, somebody a little bit more. You know, believable at that point, but I mean, I, I don't know. I actually thought uh, Jessica Lane pulled off the Scottish accent pretty good. There was a couple times where it seemed like it was unbelievably overdone. It wasn't Kevin Costner and Robin Hood, okay? <laughs> she didn't drift in and out. Yeah, she didn't. Like he did. Get her accent. <laughs> Forget it. He went down the street and died in a ditch with Kevin. I mean, and I, we won't oh, talk. She, about she that, had though. some very powerful scenes and. Did a very good job of providing the anchor for Liam Neeson's character. Yes, I agree. I thought she did. Um, I thought she did a fine job. I thought her passion in this movie was it was very evident. You know, there's a couple of scenes that we'll, we'll probably talk about later that she just was very passionate about, and I, I just I really did enjoy her. I mean, like I said, I haven't seen her really much in anything. Uh, like I said, King Kong when I was a kid, and I don't really even remember that. But outside of that, I can't tell you what I've ever seen her in. She's been very busy. Uh, she, I mean, she's one of these people that makes about a movie a year. She's still active, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah, but she's in movies that I'm never going to watch, probably. That's it. That's that's what she chooses. Yeah. Maybe that says something about you and I, because I don't see her in much anymore, but I'm obviously not seeing enough of the artistic kinds of movies that Jessica Lange does. Right. Uh, Liam Neeson. Honestly, you know, I'm trying to think. If, how, how big of an how big of a name was he back in the mid? He, he real quick. He had come out about two years before. He his big breakthrough had been Schindler's List. He had done that in about '93, and it, it is a very good movie. Yeah, it was like '93 or '94. It was the movie right before he did um, this movie. So I think that gave that that was a very powerful movie, critically acclaimed. I think it did fairly well in the box office. I liked it a lot. I thought it was one of Spielberg's better movies. Oh my gosh! Uh, and he played, and he played Oscar Schindler. Yeah. Well, also we we talked about him in Excalibur. Yes. He, he was one of the uh, Knights of the Round Table in Excalibur, which was done back in '81. Yeah, he's sort of went. So he had been around for a while, but you are right. He did uh, Schindler's List a few years before this. He did one of my guilty pleasure movies, <laughs> which was Next of Kin. I was going to say you got to bring Next of Kin up. Playing uh, Briar Gates versus uh, and he had a great Kentucky backwoods accent. He did. He, I saw nope. him in that movie. I thought, well, who's this? Who's this Hilljack they hired to, to play this Kentuckian? Like, well, okay. Okay, you know what? This is what we're going to do. We are getting um, for Ken. We've got to get next of Ken on the list real soon. Oh yeah, yeah that's not that's not my guilty pleasure movie. My guilty ple- my my ple- my next. We're supposed to be doing Last of the Mohicans, which is yes. the one I've recommended, yep. which yep. is one of my favorites. But ne- again, Next of Kid is not a good movie. It's a pretty no. bad movie. And we got a B5 reference right off the bat. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we, we, have, we have to throw that out there. We'll have to throw it out there because, you know, when you just look, when you just look at the cast, the cast is worth just talking about. And I mm-hmm. remember, and honestly, I remember seeing Next of Kid, but 
I couldn't, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I couldn't even tell you the plot, and I remember seeing it. But then again, that was in 1989, and that was probably at the height of my, um, uh, like, blackout days when I was really parting it up. But um, anyway, moving on before I really get in trouble. Well, it was, it falls in that kind of Steven Seagal type of movie. There were a lot of those coming out in the late 80s, early 90s. Yep, they were B minus C grade. And this Action is just the movie. one Patrick Swayze happened to be the lead for it, so yep. it was a different take. Yep, but oh, Steven okay. Seagal could have played this movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny because again, Liam Neeson does a great role in it, I yeah. think, but he is a supporting character. He's not the star. All right, uh, let's see other actors to talk about. I want to talk about. Well, let's let's just get right there. Let's talk about Tim Roth. Like I said, the guy should have gotten an Academy Award. Um, like you said, he was up for supporting, uh, best supporting actor. Dude got ripped off big time. I, I've seen Tim Roth in a bunch of stuff. I'll repeat myself. Nothing he's done, I think, is, really holds a candle to this. I, I, I really have, I really say that with all honesty. I mean, I've seen him in, um, you know, Planet of the Apes. I saw him in Reservoir Dogs, which, I, yeah, I guess I'm tainted right there because I just, that's one of those movies. That's right up there with like Deliverance. I just, cannot watch that movie again. Um, I mean, he was in Pulp Fiction, but he didn't really have, you know, other than the beginning and the end, he really wasn't in it. So I, so I guess that's really kind of it. I just, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff, but it almost seems like this was the biggest role he ever had. Because it seemed like in anything else, at least that I've seen anything big, he's almost like um, second fiddle. And even though this was a supporting role, it was a big supporting role. I mean, it was pretty much Rob Roy and him. I mean, it was almost like everybody else was really backstory. So well, you're correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. this was this was a, a, definitely a story with a strong protagonist and a strong antagonist, yeah. and they got about equal screen time. Right. Yeah. At least it felt like it. Yeah. I would have to agree. I would almost say you were right, uh, Ken. I almost say they almost had equal screen time, and um, I'm amazed. First of all, I'm amazed that he actually got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But the fact that he was, I'm very disappointed he didn't get it. But, I, you know, I didn't follow that kind of stuff back then. And I almost have to wonder anymore with the, you know, with a lot of these award shows that they have for Hollywood, if it's just, it almost, almost feels like doping and <laughs> tour to France, everything's fixed <laughs> or something. Because it's like you hear about who gets what for what, and you're like, really? How, okay. How did that work? But again, different tastes. Maybe that's just it. You know, we've got this is the man cave movie review taste, and it's not quite out there with the rest of Hollywood. But there you go. What can I say? Uh, Eric Stoltz, he plays McDonald, who was Liam Neeson's uh, best friend, who ends up dying a horrible death uh, because Tim Roth stole the money from him. And um, I don't know. I Eric Stoltz is one of those guys. You remember him back from the '80s, and he just kind of seemed like he was one of those dudes that would kind of drift in and out of movies. Um, again, he was in Pulp Fiction with Tim Roth, so there you go. You got a you got a little Pulp Fiction. Uh, That's true. That is right. Yeah. <laughs> if I can make a comment, you know, there's there's a subplot in the movie where Eric Stoltz's uh, Alan McDonald character, he's make he's always telling people that you know what he wants to do is get on a ship and go to the new world and get a new life because essentially life in Scotland sucks. The old ways are dying. You know, be a free man. Don't have some Lord telling you what to do. And something that hit me was, you know, we're going to be doing last Mohicans. So last night I was watching last Mohicans 
and it opens up and there's, you know, these people living out in the frontier and, you know, they're living on the log cabin and everything. And it hit me like, this is a continuity. I mean, those people in that log cabin could be Eric Stoltz's children or grandchildren, a character from Scotland that goes to the new world. And if you think about it, compared to what he's living in, in Scotland, that little log cabin on the frontier is like a palace. Right. It's got some land. It's got, you know, extra sheds. I mean, nobody's no lords right down the street telling you what to do. Right. So when you take a look at Last Mohicans, I'm just going to say, think of that as sort of a continuity. And again, they're both Clash of Culture movies, but this one, I think it, it sort of segues right into that. I'll just shut up now because that's a whole different story. But <laughs> I did feel kind of disappointed about uh, Alan McDonald's fighting skills. I mean, uh, at the start of the movie, I'm thinking, hey, this is a tough guy. He can handle his own. But you know, he went down pretty quick. But then the thing you learn in the movie is you don't go up against Archie Cunningham. Archie Cunningham may come off as a fop and as a dilettante, but he's a cold stone killer. Right. And he's got the skills to take anybody down. You know, that's another excellent point that you brought up, Ken, is that you do see Archibald Cunningham as this, you know, foppish, effeminate looking dilettante. And then you find out that he really is a master swordsman. And you see that kind of in the beginning when he gets challenged or he makes a sort of a challenge to a duel. And, th- and these aren't duels to the death. Well, I guess they could be, but they're just, you know, a duel basically. I guess you, you know, first cut or something like that, you're done. And, you know, he goes out there and he does these little curtsies and stuff like that to, you know, honor his, honor his master. And then, you know, you've got uh, Guthrie who's fighting him, who's this big strapping beast of a guy with this big ass claymore. And Tim Roth's got that uh, rapier, or I don't know. yeah, it's not a foil. I would say yeah. it's a it's a rapier. It's more of a rapier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he just pretty much proceeds to beat the living snot out of Guthrie. So you start to realize he may be a fop and the dilettante, but man, you don't want to get a get in a sword fight with him because he knows he's a, what he's doing. Yeah, and he's he. But the, and the thing is, too, he's he's a duelist. That type of fighting skill would not get him far in combat, which is what Rob Roy is. Rob Roy is a combat fighter, someone who's fought border raids and cattle thieving. Whereas Archie's learned to be a duelist and make money off of it, and also play the honor right. game, dishonor game. Yeah, if you if you, if you took uh, Archie and threw him in with the three musketeers. He could hold his own and show him a few tricks. If you threw him into that movie, The Duelist, I don't know who'd come off on top in that stylized, dueling format sword fight. Yeah. Uh, one other person here that I want to just give a passing reference to. You see her briefly in a couple of uh, couple of scenes, and that was Shirley Henderson, and she played the wife of one of the um, kind of one of the clan clan guys, and. For those of you who follow the Harry Potter series, she played Moaning Myrtle. She the painting? No, she's not the painting. She's the ghost that lives in the girls' bathroom. That's got the hots for Harry Potter. Wow, that's just all kind of weird. It is. I, I've avoided the Harry Potter movies. Oh, they're great. They're actually pretty fun. Uh, she started off in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and then you see her again in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And I don't think you see her after that. But yeah, those were the two that she showed up in, which is which is pretty amazing because she's uh, she's two years older than I am, almost by 
by a couple of months. So she's, you know, she's not a spring chicken for the role that she was playing. And she, you know, did a pretty good job of passing herself off as, as a kid. But then again, you look at her IMBD picture and she still looks like a kid, even at her advanced age. Like me. Yeah. You yeah, did. like you. Ken does look like a kid. Yeah, he does. Yeah. A saggy, wrinkly know. kid. Yeah. <laughs> All right, real quick, want to move on to talk about soundtrack. I thought the music in this movie was fantastic. It really was uh, uh, fit the period, fit the – I can't even think of where I want to say. Um, it obviously was very uh, gay, or, uh, very much Celtic style. Uh, in fact, in one of the one of the scenes, they actually had a uh, fairly famous uh, Scottish singer. I can't remember what the hell her name is, uh, and she did this whole big song in, in Gaelic, which was really really moving. It's I love that music. I just love everything about the uh, you know the the Celtic music, Scottish music, Irish music. I just I just love the sound of it. And there was a lot of that in this. No bagpipes though. You're right. There weren't. There were Ulian pipes. Yeah, but there were not bagpipes. Yeah. yeah. I think this music is, uh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. What's the other frickin' movie? Braveheart? With a Mel Gibson. Thank you, Braveheart. You know, Braveheart and this movie both have a lot of good Celtic music. I like the Celtic music here better. I think this is a stronger soundtrack. That's, I think it pairs better with the movie, too. The music doesn't take over the, the, sound, the movie, but it really accents the movie. Um, and it was also in that period when, uh, I've always been a fan of Celtic music. I know you have too, Steve. When all of the, the big Celtic rush of Celtic music was hitting this country, you, you had the Irish step dance groups coming through. You had a lot of different Celtic push. I think it got to ride that coattail. Unfortunately, I don't think you hear, you see people talking about this soundtrack the way you do Braveheart. That that soundtrack got a lot of play versus this one, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, again, this movie, it didn't get the exposure. It didn't get the awards. And, you know, sadly, it doesn't get play. I mean, You're right. it's not that uncommon for me to flip on cable and boom, there's Braveheart. I never see this on cable. We, uh, you have to go out and seek it. You have to order it. Yeah, right. And it's streaming right now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it is streaming right now. So you can, uh, you know, just put in Rob Roy and uh, Netflix and you know, it'll come right up. All right, moving on. To, I want to talk a little bit about the trivia, and there's there's not much trivia on this one. Uh, surprisingly, I thought there might have been a little bit more. Uh, let's see. The role of the Duke of Argyle was first offered to Sean Connery. I that I could have seen that, but would have been interesting. Would have been interesting, yeah. but I think at this point, you know, this is this is '95. I mean, this is you know, Sean Connery is at the height of his power. I would say here. So well, I, you know, there's a, there, there's a problem, which is you know. If, if, if Sean Connery had to play a Scottish nobleman, he'd probably play him with an Arab accent. Because, <laughs> wow. you know, when he plays a, a Moorish nobleman, he plays him with a Scottish accent. <laughs> Here we go. You really... Wow. I, I, I'm done. I'm, I'm speechless. I'm, I got nothing. Uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, Am I right? No, you. No, you're right, and that's great stuff because no, Ken's just reminding me of the the beef that I had with uh, the wind and the lion. You know, Mr. Roni, you're a very difficult man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and speaking of the Duke of Argyle, that was, I believe, Andrew Keir, and that was his last movie. 
He was great. Yeah, he was. He, he, had, he, a, he, he had, had a very a restrained noble. Uh, yes. He had this great understated nobility about him. Yeah. Yes. And he, he did a good did. job of portraying someone. Again, he was in a struggle. Either he or Montrose were going to actually soil their hands doing the dirty work. They had henchmen and underlings to do that for them. But they were in the background. You know, Everything going on is really it's a culmination of the struggle between these two guys. And poor Rob Roy and you know the other people just sort of foils in a lot of ways. Yep, I like the way he played the part. He he had he had a good look about him. I mean, you, you could just see a you could almost picture him. He would have been on a portrait from that period if you were walking through some Scottish castle. You'd be like, hey, that's uh, it's the Duke of Argyll. I mean, he just had that look about him. Yeah, and speaking of which, that that tripped my trigger about best wigs in a movie. Oh my gosh, yes, best wigs and some of the best costuming. Because you had very bright, very expensive colors of the lords, you know, the Argyles, the Montroses, the Archies, with their pinks and their reds and their rich colors. And then you had these washed-out highland colors of the tartans and the plaids of Rob Roy and his folks. And part of it also is because it's the Lace War period, but it's just much better looking in that regards than... um, than Braveheart. I know we're comparing the two, and they're completely different eras. But some of the best wigs, going, circling back, there were just there was just great to see the that period done so well with with hair wear, as it were. <laughs> hair wear. Yeah. And, no, you're absolutely. Maury's wigs. Maury's wigs don't come off. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know what? There's there's a spoof video there to be made. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, maybe if my hair keeps thinning and receding, maybe I'll get myself a white powdered wig, and then I can like get a gig as an English jurist or something. Well, you are—you could be easily become a barrister. You're already That's an it. attorney. I'm an attorney, so I'll just say, yeah, I'll, I'll just go to England and put on a black robe, a white wig, and you know, he'll know the difference. There you go. And for, right. for the listeners, the wigs that we're talking about, you're thinking—you may be thinking about the wigs of like you know the founding fathers when you see them there with those little white. You know, the, the white wig with the tail. No, we're talking like flowing curls. locks. Yeah, I mean, huge flowing locks, curls, and just. That's for the men. Yeah. Yeah, yeah on men. Yeah. Down past your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, there were some that had the little wigs, but this was a period. Again, this is the early 1700s. It's not Revolutionary Wars like 1776. This is like, what, 1726? I don't know if it's that. Like, I thought it was like 17, 17 you know, like the so it's, it's like, you know, 60 years before. Yeah. And at that time, you still had, you know, the look for, you know, men of station was long, flowing curls that you can't get. You can't grow. I mean, very few people can naturally grow it, so the guys wear wigs. Yeah, that's, you know, you look at that, like you said, it was the, uh, you know, the age of lace, definitely. Lace and Paisley. And red coats, you got the, you know, when it comes time to go chasing Rob Roy, they got the early red coats, yeah. you know, troops, which is, again, lots of impractical looking uniforms, but it, practicality wasn't what they were looking for. It was style and it was presenting a, an appearance and a, an image. It's not so important that I fight good, is that I look good. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, appearing in this film, netted Tim Roth his biggest paycheck to date. Or, I'm sorry, up to that date. It was his biggest paycheck up to that date. So, there you go. Uh, Love this part. Tim Roth thought he was going to be fired for making Archibald Cunningham too eccentric. 
He asked his agent to start looking for more work for him. Despite thinking this, the director told him to be more campy and eccentric. Love that. You know, you know and he, he wasn't campy. That's the great thing. He knew, he as an actor, that's one of those hard lines not to go over. Mm-hmm. And Tim Roth took it right up to the point where it did not become a farce. Mm-hmm. He was a fop, but it did not become a campy farce. He did such a great job of that. He knew that line. He does such a great job here. And a thing to keep in mind is you don't get to say this literally, but it's very important for his character. This character is a bastard. He doesn't know who his father is. You know, his mom slept with who knows how many people, probably some nobleman or somebody from the court. He doesn't know. And he's got to make his life in the world. He's grown up on the fringes. My, my impression is he's grown up on the fringes of the nobility. He's got the taste for that lifestyle, but now he's out on his own. He's a young man. He's got to make his own way. And what's he got? All he's really got is no morals and a sword. Right. And so he's a sycophant to anyone of power, but he's contemptuous of anybody that's his equal or less. All right. We are done with trivia. So, gentlemen, I have to ask, brother, what you drinking? Now we know it's a school night, so we're we're dialing back a little bit here. All right, tell by the uh, the even keel and tenor of our voices as we uh, discuss this great and fantastic film. So I'm going to uh, Mark's loving on something over there. So we're just going to shoot this one over to uh, my good and dear friend Mark and say, "What do you got there, sir?" Well, and you're right; it, it's a school night, so I'm I'm enjoying. I pulled out a bottle I have been holding back on for a while, haven't sipped on it, and for the occasion. A 25-year-old Baldany Portwood single malt scotch. Wow! And and it's one of those you just you sample. You don't you don't throw back. And it's nice Portwood bottle of scotch. Nice. I've been nursing this thing for I don't know eight years. You know you don't you don't take it out often and you just sip on it when you wow. do. Wow! There you go. Well, that is uh, that's fantastic. If I had some. J and B left over here. I'd probably <laughs> back with you too. But uh, now J and B, you can throw back. <laughs> that, yeah, you don't. Which you do. <laughs> Which I do. Actually, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not that much of a Scotch drinker. I mean, I'll have some every once in a while. Yeah. It, it's like the first couple you got to get by, and then after that, it's like you know, it's not too bad. You know, once you get those first two, uh, then after oh, that, nice. it's it, it kind of you know, it stops kicking me in the uh, in the pancreas. For whiskey, I just prefer bourbon. For some reason, bourbon goes down better with me than scotch. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but I, you know, if, you, if you put two side by side, I'm going to pick the bourbon about every time. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I, I will say I do like the Irish whiskey, but um, no, but you know, well, you know what? We're Americans. We got to like our bourbon. So, uh, right. Ken, share with us. Well, I was actually giving some thought to this. I was coming back home from my uh, business meeting in Evansville. And I had my night all planned, and one of my plans was to swing by the liquor store and pick up the missing ingredients I would need to make a Rob Roy, which is essentially some sweet vermouth. But I don't know if you heard about this, Mark, but there is an 80-car pileup on Interstate 70. I, and I saw that. I got home like an hour and a half later after sitting in slow – I mean, I had to get off, had to turn around through the middle of the highway and beat my way through side roads and come in on in, on Highway 40, which was packed. I was oh, going sure, like five miles an hour. 
So long story short, by the time I got back in the neighborhood, it's like, I don't want to stop by the liquor store. I'm just going to go home. <laughs> so what I'm drinking is some of the Kentucky bourbon barrel stout that you were nice enough to give me. I uh, You'd hyped it on a prior show. I like the Kentucky bourbon barrel ale. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. This is very good. I like the, sort of a creamy, smooth, goes down easy. So it, it, it's going to be an addition to my, uh, you know, my repertoire. Good. And it does have the bourbon like it. in it. It's yeah. not that, you know, again, it's not scotch, but it's nope. bourbon at least. So I'm glad you liked it. I wondered, I wondered since it's a stout of how you, how you'd go well, for it. I like stouts, but yeah, I, I just, I, I tend to drink lighter beers, but I'll drink a stout if you put it in front of me. Very good. Like it. Well, Ken, I have to say that, uh, you and I were, um, drinking the same thing tonight. I was also having, uh, a bottle of the Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Stout, and Mark, I don't know if I had one over the weekend when you when you were over, but I I, I, I will say um, I, I'm drinking my last Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Stout. They were wonderful. In fact, I was saving it. I sa- I had one left. I was saving for this show. It's fantastic. This is actually a very good stout. I, yeah, I, it's good. I cannot recommend this uh, high enough. It definitely would be. Um, one of my top stouts that I would drink. And yeah, hard, hard. They just released it in December, so it's it's still not. I don't think it's gotten out beyond Kentucky right now. But I'll make sure when I come back up, I but I bring you more. It's good. It's, I, I still like the bourbon ale better because I just taste the bourbon. But I do really like the stout. It's just it's a it's a toss up. But I enjoy the ale. Of, if you're having a mix of beers and you're going to include the bourbon barrel ale, it's worth putting some of this in there too. Yes, absolutely. You know, in full disclosure, I the, one of the reasons I do like this, and I will say honestly, I, I like it better than the bourbon barrel stout, is, and part of this is just personal taste for me. I like a little, I like the slight hint of bourbon that's in this. Mm-hmm. But with the other, with the bourbon barrel ale, it's like it's it almost overpowers it. Where it's almost like I feel like I'm tasting more bourbon than I am beer. And it is. I mean, you think, God, you know, as much as I love bourbon, as much as I love beer, it's like, you know, chocolate and peanut butter. You should put them together. And it's just like, <laughs> well, just a bit. I mean, you you can kind of overdo it. And part of that is I almost even think, too, with, um, like, for example, remember that dogfish ale I got that was like percent oh. or something? See, that's oh. the problem. When you start getting that high alcohol content in beers, it's – I mean, you're, you're tasting. I mean, it's almost like you're tasting bourbon in them, or almost yeah. the pure alcohol, and, it, and it's kind of harsh. And and I'm not saying about the bourbon ale. I mean, I will drink it. I do enjoy it. This I think is much better. Well, okay. then again, I'm a stout guy, so that's my thing. Now, do you like the beer barrel bourbon I brought you, as well? Um, a bottle of beer barrel bourbon. Is it gone? <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Ah, that's a big yes, folks. It's empty. Well, well, we kind of put a little dent in that one. We, yeah, you, we, you and Brian put a dent in that one. Yeah, well, whatever. Well, good. I'm glad you liked it. It was. It was wonderful. Yeah, I thought so. No, it was. It, that was that was fantastic. And uh, yeah, I shouldn't have. I should have savored a little bit more, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, you're easy to buy for. You're uh, you're an expensive drunk, but you're a predictable drunk. Well, I'm not that expensive. You don't go to. You don't have to go that high, high level. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, you're Same right. Same with me. I got simple tastes. Yeah. yeah, Buffalo Trace is about as cheap as I could probably go. 
All right, folks. I've so got to say, even I have not gone that cheap. I've got it, standards. It's 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 okay. It, it'll it'll do. Yeah, if you're in a pinch or whatever, or if yeah. you're to be honest with you, it's one of those things where if you're having friends over or something like that. That's and if you want to mix or if you just want to throw it on rocks, it's actually not that bad. It's a little it's a little harsh, but to be honest with you, for the price, I would just end up going up to Jim Beam's uh, Devil's Cut. Yeah, in my view has always been if people don't enjoy or can't appreciate good bourbon, then don't give them the good bourbon. Give them the average bourbon. Exactly. Well, you remember that time we went to? Uh, we're digressing here real quick, but you know what? That's part of the show is we talk about um, what uh, we want to talk about. We talk about beer babes and uh, bourbon on this show, so that that's part of it. But I remember that time we went up to uh, Four Roses, yeah, to that yeah, distillery yeah. there. And I remember where after the tour is over, and this, they do this all the distilleries. You have a little, you, they they give you a little testing over there. And I have to say, of all the ones we went to, they were the uh, most generous. Of the, uh, yes. uh, of the distilleries where they allow you to taste. It's basically Sally up to the bar and <laughs> help yourself. Well, they have, try all the flavors they have. Yeah, That's they've got three, they got three bourbons. They've got like their sta- you know like the the standard. They've got a uh, just like their oaked and or I don't remember what all the ones were. But then there was like the single barrel. And I remember when the guy brought it out. He goes, "This is the one you have. You bring out if you've got the you know some friends over and you want to do some mixed drinks. You can use this. You know, this is the one that." Uh, you know, you have for those special occasions, you know, you have some, you know, good friends over, you have those. This one here is when, you know, the wife leaves you and the kids move out of the house. This is the one <laughs> And I, and, and they, and it was, they were wonderful. And you could just literally, it's like, I, I really like that one. Well, here, by all means, have some more. Okay. <laughs> Thank God you were driving. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, so we're, we're done talking about uh, our uh, liver destruction. So we're going to move on to clips clips the favorite part of the show but uh i'm just gonna play these because i got a bunch i'm not gonna give too much uh, lead in on them so uh here's number one up get up see that's what i just want to i want to do that sometime where i could just walk into a room of sleeping people and just start yelling that that'd be a great thing to put on your uh alarm to wake you up in the morning there you go you can Genius. That is genius. Actually, I might actually do that. I might just load that up before I go to bed here. Uh, all right. I, I, <laughs> this is another great one. This is uh, this is Rob Roy uh, giving a little bit of an ultimatum. Would you not rather be dead this morning after a good hump on a belly full of stolen beef? Or would you have me march you back to Montrose so you can shit yourself in the gallows a month hence? You know, that hump, that hump was really fine. I think the beef was better quality than the hump. Thank you. You beat me to it. She was. There was one woman in that group. <laughs> that's what. If that's what you want to call her, if that's if that's your story, fine. Stick to it. Highlands will age a person. It's a rough life. Yeah, she's probably like twenty nine. No, they had drug her face down, back and forth, up and over the Highlands repeatedly. Oh my goodness. And 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 folks, like I said, we're not trying to be cruel. This obviously was this you know made up. I mean, they, they definitely Crum. did a lot of aesthetics. And, but when I said crone, all you had to do was put a pointy black hat on her, and there you go. As a matter of fact, that when she did that one laugh at the end, that was like, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was it. All right. Uh, I got this one. It's called buggering. I'm trying to remember what it means or what it is. Hold on. <laughs> so, Mr. Cunningham, what are these principal sins that distress your mother? 
Dice? Drink? Or are you a bugger or a boy? It is years, Your Grace, since I buggered a boy. And in my own defense, I must add, I thought him a girl at the moment of entry. That summarizes uh, Tim Ross, Archibald Cunningham character. Yes. Yes. Really evil, open about it. And just distasteful. He He's just, and he likes it. Yeah. He enjoys behaving this way. Well, but, you know, part of it was, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, when you think about it, he he basically was being insulted by the Duke of Argyle. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, the Duke of Argyle is just basically like, what, do you, do you like the bugger boys? And, I mean, he just kind of, like, came right back with this little witty, you know, distasteful comeback. But, nevertheless, I mean, he just kind of didn't hit a beat and just gave that and that was the campy part about him is that when he would have one of these exchanges, he would give that big ass shit eating grin and showing those horrible teeth of his. I, I really did kind of like that because that was kind of like the one time where he, I mean, he knew he couldn't say, you know, you bastard and slap him with his glove or something like that. I just thought it was, that was his way of saying, eh, up yours. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> uh, let's see. This is uh, when he's uh, talking about Guthrie. It's a fair hand for the cleaver, it must be said. Oh, you do not think much of our Highland tools. If I had to kill an ox, Claymore would be my first choice, Your Grace. You best use a musket. Save the beast a slow dying. I would not need a musket for you, Guthrie. He's so disdainful. Yeah, it is. Again, if you're not not above him, he has nothing but contempt for you. Right. Yes. The way he delivered those lines... You know, the body language and everything was just was just wonderful. And like I said, folks, I, I can't emphasize enough. Go see this movie and just watch his performance, and you're just like, how the hell did this guy not win? It, it's, and he, he had all the best lines. He really did, yeah. Well, him and Brian Cox were fighting for the best lines in this movie. Yes. <laughs> all right, this is, uh, this is a discussion between uh, Montrose and the Duke of Argyle about the succession of the, of the king. Would that she had seen a child of hers live to comfort the king. Aye, one might have hoped that a field so regularly ploughed might have yielded one good crop. In truth, I have seen healthier graveyards than that woman's womb. I'm just going to say right now, that's great writing. I mean, that's great stuff. And it's period writing. The language, a lot of, everything they used was, I mean, probably not exactly period, but it was very period-esque, and it wasn't forced in that sense. Yeah. I mean, and it was kind of like, that was Montrose's way. I just love that. A field so regularly plowed. <laughs> that's, that's basically saying is, I mean, in, in contemporary terms, you think as many times as she got laid, she'd bear one kid that made it. Um, and we're talking about the queen, by the way. Yeah, so, and that's just respect. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the queen. And it's just, you know, the way he says it, it sounds, I don't know. Sounds aristocratic, but he's kind of saying it the way I did, but much more crudely. So I, I just like that. I love that stuff. Yeah, it's just great writing. Uh, I love this part. This is after Brian Cox uh, goes to uh, wake up Archibald Cunningham, who, again, is staying with the uh, Marquis of Montrose, and um, offers to take away his chamber pot. Would you like me to take away your chamber pot? Oh, I know many a Scotsman would be glad of this on a cold morning. It's almost pure spirit, but I'm no judge of a pint of pish. <laughs> yeah. Awesome writing. 
And I love the part when he goes in that room, you know, Archie's, <laughs> Archie's just crashed out on the bed. <laughs> he walks in and wakes him up. We won't even talk about how he woke him up. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Ladies. A different technique, but, yeah, but effective. But effective. Ladies, be prepared if you go to watch this movie. But anyway, he uh, <laughs> I just love the part where Archie gets out. And it is, when you even think about it at that time, you know, he's staying at the uh, the Marquis of Montrose's uh, house. You know, but even then, you know, he gets out, and even when he's breathing, you could still see, you know, the the breath coming out because it's it's cold in there. You know, they don't have heating. It's you know, even in Scotland, this is probably fall or something like that. It's cold. You know, you wake up, it's probably like fifty, you know, forty degrees in that room. Yeah, you know, just like when he pulls out the chamber pot and just starts taking the leak off the edge of the bed, and he cracks one off, and I just love the reaction from Brian Cox it was priceless. Oh, but that's just that's my weirdness coming out there. This is Archibald getting dressed down by the Marquis of Montrose. And now, Calan tells me that you are saddling one of my serving wenches. Damn it, sir, your mother did not send you to me to debauch innocent girls. I regret that I have so offended your lordship. It's another word that needs to be brought back. Debauch? Debauch. Got, they got to bring that back. That That's great stuff. I think saddling. I could use a little more debauchery in my life. But. Saddling my serving girls. Again, we go back to great writing. It is. The writing in this was unbelievable. I mean, it was just great stuff. It's Like I said, it is not for the... Uh, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, and, and like I said, and I think probably by today, I think, and honestly, you know, full disclosure, you know, a lot of women might be quite offended by this movie. It's not, uh, it, it definitely is the language that's used, the way women were, you know, talked to or treated, and this was was not a standard. Some, the way by some, some right. people treated some. some women. By some. And it's, uh, I mean, I there's a lot of female nobility in this movie. I mean, yeah. I'm not noble in the sense of kings and queens, but, you know, strong women with quality women. But it's a rough time and a harsh environment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see. This is after Rob Roy has been on the run, and he sends Archibald Cunningham out with a um, what looks to be a uh, a large reinforced weapons squad to go out and get Rob Roy. And this is how he wants him. Broken but not dead, Archibald. That is all I ask. Broken but not dead. It has a ring to it. It was almost like they were doing the toast of the hunt. Mm-hmm. Drinking the drinking the glasses. And, and by broken but not dead, we mean busted up. This is not thrown up against the side of the car and nightsticked once. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is coming back and yeah. Broken. Yeah. As in many bones broken. Yeah. You know, this particular one here, this is finally when, because at this point, Rob Roy's, you know, he's out in the hills, and uh, Archibald knows where he lives, so he goes out there with his company of um, uh, British Redcoats, uh, look like Grenadiers, I would have said, by their by their hats. And this is where you really see the evilness in, in Cunningham come out, because uh, he basically orders the troops to, you know, kill all the livestock, burn down the house, and then uh, throws uh, Jessica Lange's character, Mary, into the house, and he, you know, and he rapes her. And the whole idea was is that she'll tell Rob Roy, and then he'll be so enraged he'll just he'll just because they don't know where he's at, but they figure we'll do this, we'll you know we'll bring him out. Almost a uh, a little bit, almost like Braveheart. 
just that whole concept. You know, if you you know violate the woman, the you know the you know the Highlander will come out. And Again, this is that's one of these scenes where Calarin's uh, character is just looking on aghast. Like, like, yeah, my gosh, I'm, I'm I'm a bad guy, but I've never stooped this low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you've crossed the line on this one. This is well beyond the uh, <laughs> normal accepted. And then he gets to the point where he tries to like make up a little bit, but of course she's not having it because of the situation. Yeah, and then basically that's what they do, you know. And then they leave her in the room, and then they you know set the house on fire. And you could see, you know, Kalern, you know, he's just kind of pacing back and forth because he's starting to get real nervous because she's not coming out of the house. If she doesn't come out, Archie, there'll be a reckoning. Shagging is one thing. Bumming us another. She'll be out. She's a hater, that one. Yeah, and she comes out, and it was, um, it was, it was, it was a tough scene. That's a very difficult scene to watch. I mean, because, like I said, it you're not expecting it, and I think even for the time that that movie was made, that really probably had the shock of a little bit of the audience. I mean, by t- by what you see today, oh, it ain't that big of a deal. I mean, you see horrible stuff and what they what they show in theaters now, but at the time. I think it did. I mean, hell, I, I like I said, I don't. That's the one part of this movie I just really don't care for watching. Because, like I said, I don't like to see. I don't like to see women in distress. I don't like to see them, you know, being hurt in any way. But again, for this movie, all it does is really solidify your hatred of that character of Archibald Cunningham. I mean, that's where you really realize, and especially how he reacts to her afterwards. You know, you just realize it's like, boy, you know what? There, there, there are so many ways that you really need to die, and you start trying to draw up a list. Oh, he goes, he get, he, it's a good way. Yeah, he gets, yeah, he gets it in the end. One of the clan guys that they left behind to, you know, kind of keep an eye on things. You know, he was up in the, he was up in the hill sleeping, and by the time he got down there, it was too late. The Brits were already gone. He realizes what happened to Mary, and we have this exchange. Swear it! I can't If I can bear it to be done, you can bear to be silent! No, you swear it! See, and that's where I really liked her performance, because she, I mean, there was just pure passion in that. I just thought she did a really great job of holding back her, her rage, what that Klansman wanted to do was just go tell Rob, we gotta, you know, we've gotta let him know so we can go kill these guys. And that was her thing. She goes, you can't tell him because that's what they want. That's what they want him to do. They want, they did this so he'll come down, you know, out of the hills and, and they'll kill him. So her whole thing is just shut up. If I can, ha- if I can be silent, so can you. And, I just thought that was a very powerful scene. And you could see how conflicted he was over it because he's mm-hmm. in the oh, yeah. too. It's all about honor. It doesn't matter if we get killed, but by God, we're going to kill at least some of these sons of bitches. And you could see for the rest of the show how conflicted he was up to the point that he told Rob with his dying breath, dumbass should have never fired that gun, but that's another story. That, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I get it. Got the fever up. He got his fever up, yeah. Well, and again, it was one of those things where they just, I think he just got tired of, okay, we're just going around watching them burn our, you know, the villages and everything like that. He's like, screw this, I'm just going to pop one of them. So, and then that that led to the whole bad thing. So, this is Archie telling his, um, the the servant wench that he was saddling, uh, to quote the Marquis of Montrose, what he thinks about love. Archie, I love you. 
Love is a dunghill, Betty, and I am but a cock that climbs upon it to crow. Like I said. He, he, he is just shite. He is. He's such a bastard. Uh, oh, I forgot this one. This is, uh, uh, this is a, this is an exchange between Archibald Cunningham and Brian Cox when uh, uh, when Brian Cox kind of first informed on Archie about uh, char- you know charging uh, charging on the uh, Montrose's credit card. So we'll play this one here. I love this. This is great stuff. You are a carbuncle on this ass of a country, Cologne. And if you ever inform against me to his lordship again, I will squeeze the puss out of you with my bare hands. That dunks. I'm using that someday. Are you saving that up for the office? <laughs> Again, great stuff. You're the carbuncle on the ass of this country. <laughs> Squeeze the pus out of you. That's great. I, that's great writing. I don't care what anybody says. Disgusting, but great. But yeah, oh, I agree. All right, uh, let's see. This is um, this is John Hurt. I don't think we've heard from John Hurt yet. I cannot. What you and that greasy capon have cooked up. But put an end to this impudence against me. I am James Graham, Marquis of Montrose, and I will not be mocked. And, you know, we didn't really talk enough about him. He, again, another fantastic performance there. You know, we look at it, all the performances by everybody in this movie were great. And his was really good. I mean, I actually kind of feel remiss now that I didn't even spend that much time talking about John Hurt. But I mean, what his his delivery and everything and his demeanor was just—I mean, that guy just oozed aristocrat in this movie. And I thought it was great. Again, the writing, calling someone a greasy capon. A capon is a castrated rooster. <laughs> of course it is. It's that level of insult. Yeah. That greasy castrated rooster. <laughs> well, if I could throw in another, you know, comment I've had. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, but a theory I have about John Hurt's Marquis Von Trust character is that <clears throat> he may be Archibald Cunningham's father. You know, yep. Arch- Archie's mother sent him there for some reason to you know hang out with the Marquis. And he's following along. He's actually paying his bills, and he's doing these other things, giving him commissions to you know run the troops. And I, I really took this as there's a subplot going on that neither one is sure if you know that's my dad and that's my son. But I think they both sort of have this thing like maybe, but we can't talk about it because who admits to being a bastard or being the father of a bastard? So there's sort of a dance going on between the two of them and everybody else relating around this issue. That's a hell of a theory there. Never even yeah. watch it well, and see if that doesn't yeah. make some things make sense. You know what? You got a point because because you know at the very end, the very end of the movie, after Archibald has been uh, cleaved, literally almost in half, when he walked up, when he took the locket because Archibald Cunningham had a locket with his mother's uh, portrait in it. And it was like the way he took the locket, and it was the way he kind of leaned over him, was kind of looking at him like, I mean, if it was just some dude that, because you, know, you never really understood that whole thing about why he, who was the mother, why did she send him? She must have had some influence with the Marquis that she could send her son off with him. But then when you heard the way Archibald talked about her in the in the movie, 
it sounded just kind of like she'd lift her skirts by, you know, to anybody who came along. So she probably was like some fairly high-level courtesan that somehow had, had access to the royal court and just kind of shagged anybody that came around. So, yeah, that, that's that's an interesting theory. Yeah, my theory is the Marquis was at court, had a shot at Archie's mom, but also knew that the Baron and the Earl and the Duke and everybody else was doing the same. And then, lo and behold, she gets pregnant. She doesn't know who the father is, and he's not sure who the father is. But he's like, maybe it's my son. I'll, I'll test him out, see how it goes. Well, and I think it's also he doesn't have another heir. So if he if this if this potential bastard works out, well then, all right, he's my son. I think through this illicit arrangement. So that's not been the first time that it's ever been done in history. So no. why not? I had never thought about that. Of all the times I've watched this movie, I always wondered about the connection. Uh, I just assumed it was just some subplot that didn't have any meaning to the movie. But now that you said that, it, you're absolutely right, it did. Because you're right. And even now that you said he actually gave him the commission of the troops to go find Rob Roy, I mean, you would have thought he would have given that to somebody else. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense now. All right, uh, got a couple more, and we'll play this one. I think this is actually the part where uh, Mary McGregor goes to the Duke of Argyle and talks to him about Rob Roy. It was not done for your grace, but for his own honor, which he holds dearer than myself or his sons, his clan or kin, and for which I have oft chided him. She had finally realized that um, they need some help, so she went to the Duke of Argyle, and that whole thing was... You know, the only reason he's in this mess right now, too, is because he didn't take your side because, you know, he was asked to accuse you of being a Jacobite. and He refused to do so. And it was all because of his honor, which, like we said in the very beginning of the show, that was a, you know, a huge underlying theme in this entire movie. It was all about honor. He didn't do anything to to hurt your honor. So anyway, all right. Number 14. This is uh, this is on the way to the final duel with Archibald Cunningham. And, um, you know, the Duke of Argyle's like, you know what, this, this guy's probably going to kill you. Uh, you're, you're walking into a death trap here, so I'll, I'll play this part. Mr. Cunningham and I have matters outstanding. She will not thank you for making her a widow. Oh, no, oh, no. Perhaps you'd like to wager a sum for her maintenance? If it will help you die any the easier, I'll lay 20 guineas for her. 50 would go further. My God, but you have a style to you, MacGregor. Oh, I like that. And I don't know if he actually thinks he's going to die or, or if he actually even knows what he's getting into. Although I don't think he does. I don't think he realizes that how good a sword fighter Cunningham is. But I just like the fact that he's basically saying it's, you know, he's up in the ante on his own life. And that's what I liked about that. I mean, it just kind of shows the type of person that he is. And also I like the he's he's not going to tug his forelock and knuckle under to the earl this is a business relationship we i'm not i'll be courteous but i'm not going to bow and scrape but we're also not friends we all know you're also benefit if i win you're benefiting in your political feud everybody this is a business relationship good point excellent i think it's actually time to move on to the checklist number one did anyone jump out of a window Yes, when Cunningham and Calairn landed with the troops to burn Rob Roy's home, 
Jessica Lange's character woke the boys up oh. and basically said, you know, bad guys are here, run, go out the back window and, you know, head for the hills. And they okay. did. Yeah. So again, oh, yeah. there wasn't glass in the windows because it's a poor little cabin, but they did go out the window. Okay. Ken gets that one. All right. Number two, was there an irrelevant female role in the movie? No. They weren't any- serving pledge. Yeah. yeah. They needed her too. No yeah, serving wench. Yeah, they need the serving wench. They absolutely need her. She was. All right, let's see. Number three is, um, well, we'll just say, could the uh, female role be better played by Tonic Katane? 1995? I don't know. What was she? I don't think she could have done the accent, for starters. I don't think she has the acting range to pull it no. off. <laughs> no. No. She had the floor. I think she's, she still would have looked too pretty. Um, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. 95? Yeah, yeah. you're right. All right, number five. Did uh, so. The, so the answer to that is no. Uh, let's see. What did I think of the? Uh, we'll just call it the female role, and I liked it. I thought uh, Jessica Lane did a spectacular job in this. Really liked her. Uh, very well done. Uh, honestly, the only movie I can ever recall seeing her in, and um, I give her two thumbs up. Very well done, Jessica Lane. Number five. Did this movie know what it wanted to do? Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yeah, no, no doubt. We wanted to show foppish dilettantes, Scottish Highlanders, and cow patties. <laughs> there were cow patties in this movie. Uh, number six, did George Lucas steal any part of this movie for Star Wars? No, but the, the prequels would have been better if they would have had Tim Roth's Cunningham character instead of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> would have been a whole different movie, but better. Wow. No, you know, Tim Roth could have been on for Palpatine. He would have been a great on for Palpatine. He would have. He would have, have yes. All right, uh, number seven, was there B5 reference? Uh, I searched high, low, and could not find a damn thing. No B5 reference in this movie. Most of these guys were, I mean, other than, like you said, Eric Stoltz and um, and Jessica Lange, everybody was from either England, Ireland, or Scotland. They weren't, they weren't knocking around Hollywood when B5 was being shot. No, not at all. All right, folks, uh, it is now time for the uh, Man Cave Movie Review of this one. And I'm going to shoot this one over to uh, my good and dear friend, uh, Mr. Mark. What do you say? You know, it's it it's a lot of fun. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. As you can tell, we all like it. I'm glad this one got put on the list. Ken mentioned it earlier. You don't see this movie played often, which is, which is a pity. Um, I enjoy this movie. It's not a 10. I think sometimes the pacing's a bit slow. That's not to say it's bad, um, but it just, I think there's some pacing issues that are minor for me. There's a couple actors, I think Eric Stoltz, uh, who I, I kind of look at and go, eh, all right, they're fine for the parts, but they, they don't, they're not great for some of the parts. But that's, that's very much overshadowed by great music, great cinematography. Terrific acting, especially by um, our friend Archibald Cunningham. It's a great period piece in a period of uh, history that you don't see too often. Um, so I give it an 8. A lot of fun, good movie, highly recommend it, and it's streaming now. So check it out. It's free on Amazon if you're Prime and Netflix if you've got streaming. Cool. Nice. Like it. Ken, your thoughts? 
I'm going to mirror most of what Marx does. I say that a lot, but it's the truth. Most of the points Marx said, I agree with. Uh, I especially will repeat the fact that this is a very good period piece. They do a real good job of evoking the atmosphere of something that isn't overdone. I mean, you know, how many Scottish Highland in the 1700 movies have come out of Hollywood? I mean, this is it, I think. Uh, and to me, I, you know, I'm a big history buff. I enjoy getting that glimpse into a different world. And they did do a good job with the characters, the dialogue, the scenery of making you really think, okay, you know, this is, we're in there. And again, this isn't the 20th century or the 21st century. This is, you know, old Scotland. I didn't have a problem with the casting. Again, you got a lot of really good, you know, several really good performances and, you know, decent supporting cast. And, you know, that's all you can ask for in a movie. That's why they're supporting cast. Supporting cast isn't supported, you know, chew up the scene and dominate. So I'm going to say, you know, I, I, I really like this movie. And when I really like a movie, I give it an eight. So I'm going to mirror what Mark gave it. Nice. Okay. Like it. I'll tell you what, guys, for me, this is, this is one of my favorite movies. I know, um, we talked about looking for, you know, little known movies that are, you know, gems or not that well known, but this one is, it's one of both. It's one of those. And it is also one of my favorites. I like everything about this movie, everything from the acting to the cinematography to the soundtrack. Like I said, folks, I cannot emphasize enough about how good the acting was in this movie by uh, literally all the central characters. Uh, you know, when you look at the the top billing of uh, Liam Neeson, Jessica Lange, John Hurt, Tim Roth, and then throw Brian Cox in there, I, I mean, the performances by them were just spectacular. And I like this period, so I, I like that right there. The whole Scottish thing, love that part. Uh, the story, everything about it was just, it, it just hit all the right notes with me. And again, this is just one of those I have to, uh, I kind of have to go above and beyond the, the Call of Duty and give this one a 10 because it's just, I think it's that good. It is a movie that I will, uh, I will throw in, you know, any chance I get. If it's, you know, one of those days, ah, what do I want to throw in while I'm, you know, painting a model or something like that, I'll throw in Rob Roy. It's just a, a great, a great film, and you know, I, and this probably, I think this is my first ten for a movie that's not a sci-fi movie. So that's kind of a big deal for me. Um, um, did you give Good, Bad, and the Ugly a ten? Did I? I can't remember. I have to look back and see. I, I honestly cannot remember what the heck I gave that. I, if it was, if it wasn't a ten, it was darn close. Yeah. You know, but for this particular one, for a period piece, this is uh, definitely my top favorite. And this is one of my top favorites. I would say this is probably in my top 10, top 20 of, of movies. So I really do like this one. It, it really does kind of hold that uh, special place in my heart. So I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to put this in like my top 10, but it's, again, I really like it. It's yeah. worth anybody out there listening. Take a look at this movie and see what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. 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 It is. It is really very good. It's very good. All right, folks, uh, thanks for uh, joining us, and we apologize, or I should say I apologize, uh, Mia Kubel, for my uh, uh, technical difficulties for not having a show last week, so we are uh, putting this one up for this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, Ken's Diamond in the Rough, uh, one uh, one of his favorites, personal favorites, and that is The Last of the Mohicans, and that movie stars... 
Um, let's see, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I'm sorry, not Abraham Lincoln. Daniel Day Lewis. You know, sometimes an easy mistake to make. It is. It, it's right. very easy uh, to make those mistakes. But uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, uh, gosh, probably one of his earlier movies. Wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah. Well, early, fairly early in his career. Okay. He was he was established yeah. when he made it. Was he yeah. really? Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah. Wasn't sure. Uh, so you got Daniel Day Lewis and Madeline Stowe, who I can uh, yeah, I could watch her all day. West Duty. Oh yeah, the West Duty's in this. Yeah, it's West Duty's first breakthrough role, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah, you've got they're, they're kind of a decent cast in this. I mean, not some people that you'll recognize, but uh, no other big names in that cast. But they their characters again are appropriate for the yep. characters they're supposed to be. I mean. They have a real feel. They look like they fit into the environment. And more wigs of the shorter variety. <laughs> yes. Wigs. Cannot have enough wigs. Awesome. Well, uh, not just wigs, but other hair pieces, the more yes. painful kind. Yes. Yes. Oh. That you attach onto your wampum belt. Wow. So, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, be doing we'll get that. We'll into that. I, yeah, we'll go into that. Yep, definitely will. All right, folks, so as I said, that is it for Man Cave Movie Review, episode 48. Stay tuned for us next week, and like I said, we're going to be talking about Last of the Mohicans. So check us out on our website at mancavemoviereview.com, and look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review, and let us know if you like the show. Uh, we're also on Facebook, so uh, give us a like, let us know that you're listening, and tell us what you uh, think of the show. And we're also at uh, Twitter at Man Cave Movie. Oh, and on Facebook, we're at Man Cave Movie Review. Just type in all one word and we'll show up. All right, so this is it. Until then, I'm your host, Steve Michaels, signing off with my good and dear friend, uh, Mark, broken but not dead, Slover. Great podcasts such as this one. Draw listeners as shite draws flies. Wow. <laughs> what? That's awesome. I like that. That's, I'm not sure if I should like that or be offended, but no, that's great. That's great stuff. Uh, and also saying farewell, adieu, and auf Wiedersehen is our other good and dear friend, Ken. I like a man who knows his place, Roni. You know, I've noticed that pink is coming back for corporate casual attire, so I think I'm going to pick up that pink number with the lace fringe that Tim Robbins is wearing towards the end of the movie. <laughs> Just don't get a rope burn, so you have to cover it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that silk scarf to cover the yeah. rope burn, but silk stockings or a must with an outfit like that oh, yeah. and, the, and the high-heeled boots yes I would, I would pay money That's that That would be awesome and get the wig don't forget the wig don't forget oh, the wig gotta have the wig gotta have the wig especially with my hairline <laughs> and then when you meet everyone you must flounce when you bow <laughs> and mince and mince mince there's two words we don't hear flouncing and mincing oh goodness we see a lot of it in this movie oh boy as it should be this is a golden age of flouncing and mincing. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, just go see the movie. You'll get it. Yeah. In the first five minutes, ten minutes, you'll understand flouncing and mincing. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks. We hope to see you next week. Ciao.